Today we're beginning a new series. It's a series on a short book in the New Testament called Ephesians. And uh, as many of you will know, our vision for the year is summed up in a very short phrase, one body, one purpose. And that phrase springs from the book of Ephesians. We find it in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 16. It's talking about Jesus Christ. It says, from him... The whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. And because that vision zooms in on one verse, we just wanted to take some time to zoom right out and actually look at the whole book of Ephesians, which is, in fact, a letter. It was written by the Apostle Paul to the Christians living in the city of Ephesus, which is in uh, today Western Turkey. Ephesus was a large city at the time. It was the second largest city in the Roman Empire. And really it was a center for commerce, also a center for the worship of Roman gods. I've been there with Debbie and it's an amazingly well-preserved ruin. I recommend it that you go. It was fascinating to walk around and see places like Medusa's temple. You remember that lady with all the snakes in her hair? The temple to worship Medusa. It was wonderful to see also crosses carved all over the city. As the Christian church was established in the first century and they took over buildings for their places of worship, including the temple dedicated to the Roman emperor Domitian. And I loved seeing this on the way into that temple with a cross carved in the lintel over their entrance. Ephesians is written to a group of churches started by Paul, which Timothy uh, was the leader of at the time of writing. And it deals really with three critical questions. Who am I? Where do I fit? And what am I living for? I'm sure that some of us will one time or another, most of us have asked these sorts of questions of our own lives, no matter where we are in terms of our journey of life, our our journey of faith. And Paul answers these in this incredible letter. He says that our reason for living our purpose, our identity, and our place in the world can all be found in the amazing work of God in Jesus. And Paul's passion for this leaps off the page. So, for example, in uh, my version of the Bible here, this is today's NIV. Chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, those 11 verses have been broken up into eight sentences that it really works and makes sense for us in contemporary English. In fact, in the original Greek in which Paul wrote, this is one long sentence. If we could hear Paul dictating this letter, we would hear the exuberance in his voice. So let me attempt to read verses 3 to 14 without any full stops. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight in love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace 
which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things, in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Truth after truth. Uh, tumble onto the parchment in which, on which he was writing. Someone described it as clause upon clause, phrase upon phrase, a cascading waterfall of praise. Paul just can't contain himself because for Paul and uh, if the Ephesians and by extension us really grasped what he's saying about the work of God in Jesus Christ, we wouldn't be able to contain ourselves either. Paul wants his readers to understand the incredible story of what God has done through Jesus and to be changed by that. And so throughout the letter, we hear phrases, connecting phrases from kind of this point, things like therefore, or then, or because, and of course, for this reason, which is the title of this series. Paul's saying that when we fully understand the incredible gospel, the message of what God has done in Jesus, that is a reason to live differently. In chapter 5, verse 15, for example, he says, be very careful then how you live. So a reason to live differently, a reason to see ourselves and the people around us differently, and a reason to see our life's purpose differently. So this is a theme that we'll be coming back to throughout the series, how our lives might be shaped by God's incredible plan. So today I want to look at that plan which Paul outlines in the first chapter of this letter. And these opening verses that we've just looked at there, they're just so rich. And you know I'm only going to be able to touch on a few little key things in the time that we have today. So I really would encourage every one of you to read it, whether on your phone you can find it online, whether you have a physical Bible, to read this letter. It's only six chapters. It won't take you very long, but it's just so wonderful to get the feel of the whole letter. If you're in a small group, we will also be providing some focus week resources to help you go deeper. But for now, let's look at what God has done that should shape and motivate our identity and our purpose so completely. So we're in Ephesians chapter 1, and let's just look at verse 4. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace. Paul was speaking here to predominantly non-Jewish believers, so people who had previously not been included 
as part of God's people. And here Paul's reminding them and us that they, they too are part of God's chosen. His plan from the very beginning was that people from every nation, every tribe, uh, every people, every language would, would come together to form one family. Now Paul's reference to adoption here in these verses was not a casual one and it actually painted a very powerful picture to the original Ephesian readers. Just outside the city there were places where unwanted children were taken. They were called baby dumps. And Seranus of Ephesus, a gynecologist at the time, he wrote a manual for midwives where he suggested that newborns' limbs should be measured. If the proportions were not up to the standard then the parents should take that baby out to the dump. Babies who didn't measure up to the perfect standards of Roman culture, or if the mother couldn't afford to keep the child, would be left outside to contend with the elements. And this was perfectly permitted by the Roman law of death by exposure. Pretty horrific. How could humankind allow such a thing to happen? These babies left on the tump would sometimes be picked up by slave traders to be used in physical labor or in the sex trade. Christians in Ephesus adopted. They went to the dump, and if the child had not already died, they'd find a live child, and they would adopt, uh, adopt some of these abandoned children to rescue them from the fates of either slavery or death. Under Roman law, Adoption, too, we may not realize, was a really serious business. Paul's use of the word is powerful in ways that we may not immediately uh, see as obvious. For example, if someone chose to, they could disinherit their own children, strike them out of the will. If they fell out with their own offspring, they could disinherit them. But apparently, if you adopted a child, you could not do that. Adopted children would always have access to the family and all that comes with that, the status, the name, and the inheritance associated with being part of that family. So this idea of adoption had a deep resonance with the first Ephesian readers of this letter, and it was an incredibly powerful picture. The abandoned, the discarded, have been rescued from a horrific fate and chosen and adopted into a family. The unwanted have become wanted. And it's a family where, as we see in verse 3, he, Jesus has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. It's a family that is able to know, verse 18, the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That is an incredible family that we are embraced into. Some of you may feel that you just don't measure up, you know, to the perfect standards of God, a perfectly holy God. Well, here's the reality, right? None of us do. None of us ever will in our own strength. I don't by any means. And some of you, you know, here today, you may feel, you may relate to that thing of feeling unwanted, rejected, perhaps feeling discarded in some way. And Paul is telling us, no, that's not your identity. From the beginning, God had a plan for you. Long before you were conceived, he chose you. And if you say yes to your adoption, he embraces you fully and profoundly into his family. 
This idea mentioned in verses 4 and 5 of individuals being chosen from the beginning of time, predestined for adoption, is a concept which scholars and theologians have debated for centuries. What does it mean to be predestined? Do you have choice in this matter? Is everyone chosen? Is everyone predestined for adoption? Does that mean some are not? Well, just let me give you a simple answer. Whatever the questions it raises, my understanding is that everyone who responds to the offer of salvation is included in God's family. Everyone. The invitation is open to us all. And when we accept the invitation and become followers of Jesus, we step into our adoption and realize that we were chosen from before the creation of the world. So the first thing Paul tells us is that we have been chosen from the beginning, adopted into his family. And then he says this in verse 4, he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. He chose us to be holy and blameless. Now, as some of us, some of us read that, we don't feel at all holy, we don't feel at all blameless. After all, we know better than anyone, our own shortcomings. And quite frankly, there are several things we've done which we should be blamed for. We are not blameless. But so how does it work? Well, here's the great thing. Paul says he chose us in him. And then in verse 7, he underlines that. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. In him, in Jesus Christ, the one who was and is perfectly holy and blameless, we are hidden. We are redeemed, we are saved, we're made clean through his grace, the unmerited favor of God, and his grace richly lavished upon each of us who've responded to his offer with our yes. My friend Dave Smith from uh, Kingsgate Church in Peterborough has this delightful little uh, illustration of this. And he talks about this wonderful thing. Whoops. Ha! <laughs> called an iPad. That's called a glass of, well, it was a glass of water. An iPad is a magnificent creation. And it does so many incredible things. So some of us grew up, if you're as old as me, you remember like the invention of Pac-Man, where you went to an arcade, put your money in, and, and then something happened. That was like the height of technology. You know, generations there growing up now, it's like, well, totally conversant with technology. But what is contained in this little item is incredible. The apps like Church Suite, I see on the front row here. Awesome. Uh, absolutely. Um, all sorts of things you can do and the, like the whole world is somehow contained in this little thing I remember talking to my father who sadly had Alzheimer's and he's no longer with us but he couldn't understand how the internet could be contained in this he didn't think it was big enough to be able to anyway it's an extraordinary thing there's one problem with an iPad is if what just happened to my glass of water happened to an iPad and you dropped it they tend to break screen gets cracked or something goes wrong with the hard drive in there and suddenly all these things you had access to you no longer have access to you can't the work you've saved on it oh my notes all these things it malfunctions and it doesn't work the way it's designed to something similar happens when we forget who we are and we start to live in ways that we're not designed to live we develop cracks we become broken we become we malfunction in the way that we work. 
uh, on the inside. Chapter 2 of this book of Ephesians, Paul describes this as being dead in our transgressions and sins. And so we need God to do something. But, you know, God doesn't come along and say, well, you're a mess. I can see that you're broken, not the way I designed you to be. You know, what I'd like you to do is try harder, get more religious, you know, do more good stuff. He doesn't do that. He sends Jesus, which I'm going to represent here by this beautiful brand new iPad holder. When we receive and we believe in Jesus, we find ourselves in him. He chose us in him. In him, we have redemption. In another of Paul's letters, he talks about us being children of God, being clothed with Christ. In another of his letters, he says we are hidden in Christ. You can't see the broken iPad because it's hidden in this cover. Now that doesn't mean that we're not still in some way broken, that we don't ever sin. It means that our sin is paid for by the death of Christ and Jesus was the only one in history who is and was holy and blameless and we are in Jesus and therefore we are seen. When God sees us, what does he see? Holy and blameless because we're in him. Holy is another one of those words which means something different to us than it did to Paul's original readers. Uh, we might think of holy as being simply especially good or righteous. But it really meant, in addition to that, to be set apart for a specific purpose. But, so by this definition, if you look around our homes, there'll be things which are sort of holy, right? They're set apart. So if you have a coffee pot in which you do not make tea or orange juice or anything else, you make coffee. On one level, that is like a holy coffee pot. If you have a toothbrush, then hopefully, you know, it's used for cleaning your teeth and hopefully not anybody else's, uh, nor for any other purpose. It's kind of a holy toothbrush. These objects aren't inherently righteous, but they are set apart for a special purpose. Holiness is not about being perfectly good, but it does mean that God's intention for us is to be set apart for a special purpose. But what is that purpose? Well, we're going to explore the practical outworkings of this in the coming weeks. But today, let's just focus on one thing. Back to Ephesians chapter 1 here, we saw in verse 6, living for God's glory. Paul lays it out three times in these 12 verses that we read. Was it 11 verses we read earlier? No, it's 12. In verse 6, he says, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he's freely given us in the one he loves. Verse 12, in order that we might be for the praise of his glory. Verse 14, guaranteeing our inheritance to the praise of his glory. God's purpose in creating the world is that everything would function to the praise of his glory. That people would glorify God. That they would recognize and honor him. That they would value him and worship him above everything else. Not because God somehow wants his ego to be stroked. In our times of worship, sung worship here, somehow, you know, he needs a bit of help from us to realize, you know, how wonderful he is. But because he wants everyone and everything to recognize the reality. The reality is he's our creator, he is our sustainer, and he wants everyone to live out of that recognition. It's the way life works best. We were created to love God, honor God, desire God, and find our satisfaction in him. Perhaps above everything else, that's the great purpose of existence, to live for the praise of his glory. 
Now, the danger of this message is that, that we're to live for the glory of God is that it can be perceived and translated as, well, what are you going to do then for God? How are you going to start getting active and productive for the Lord? What's the big sacrifice you're going to make for God's glory? Since God has done so much for you, what are you going to do for him? Now, while there is, of course, some truth in that, we are to be profitable servants, it is also true to say that God's glory doesn't rest on what you and I do for him. We don't glorify God most by doing things for him. We glorify God most by allowing him to do something for us. The good news of our faith is not, will you meet God's needs? The good news of Christianity is, will you submit to God and allow him to meet your deepest needs? You see, we so easily find ourselves looking elsewhere to get our needs met. We've got this tendency to try and meet our needs in some counterfeit way, through relationships, through work, through sex, through whatever we're into. We try to satisfy our needs, rushing here and there, finding, looking for and finding some cheap substitute. The good news is, Give up your fake, phony ways of trying to meet your own needs. Turn to God, who alone can truly fulfill you. The glory of God is to be found in allowing him to be good news to you, to meet your needs, to help you, encourage you, to love you. It's not what you and I do for him, but what he does for us. Perhaps one of the biggest lies the enemy sows is that becoming a Christian is like putting on a straitjacket that makes you somehow smaller. It constricts you and it kind of oppresses you. And that when you throw off Christianity, that you might become free of those constraints. Some people have a view of the Christian faith which says everything fun seems to be prohibited and everything which isn't seems to be compulsory. That's some people's view of religion. Well, the true, you know, true faith in Jesus and relationship with God, nothing could be further from the truth. Committing one's life to Jesus gives a person expansive breathing room. There's life abundant on offer for us. When God begins to operate in our life, his goal is to give us a life of freedom, life to the full from what is actually constantly trying to control us because we don't live in a neutral environment. The world is trying to shape us into its mold and the enemy is trying to crush us at every point. We all need to be rescued from a life without God. And this happens at the point we decide to commit our life to Christ. But also we need to be rescued whenever we find ourselves getting stuck in enemy territory. Ephesians 1 verse 7 there, in him we have redemption. In him we are saved, we are redeemed, we are rescued. There's a great film I'd recommend if you haven't seen it, Behind Enemy Lines. It's pretty tense. It was loosely based on a true story involving Captain Scott O'Grady, whose plane was downed over Bosnia back in 1995. While flying his F-16 over Bosnia on this United Nations mission enforcing the no-fly zone, his plane was suddenly hit by a surface-to-air missile uh, fired by the Serbs. So he ejected 26,000 feet up, parachuted into enemy territory. The Serbs saw the plane come down. They saw his chute. They watched where he landed, and they're all over to try and go and uh, capture him and probably kill him. And he hit the ground, immediately cut his... Uh, loose, uh, cuts loose his chute, plunged into the woods, 
covers himself in grass and earth and lies still face down in the dirt, cupping his camouflage flight gloves over his head so that he wouldn't be seen and captured. And within minutes, a teenage boy and a man walk past. Then he sees armed men nearby, he hears gunfire, and he's sure he's going to be caught. And he stayed like that for days, collecting rainwater in a little plastic bag and eating leaves, grass, and bugs. And at one point, the Serbs got so close, pounding the ground, the undergrowth there, just looking, searching and searching this area again and again, about three feet from his head, they're pounding rifle butts, and they didn't see him. After five days, he felt it was safe enough to use his radio. And Scott sent a signal to let the Americans know where he was and that he was still alive. And then they bring in this incredible rescue thing and eventually he sees the Marines who are sent to rescue him. He comes running out of his hiding place. As I recall the film, there's bullets flying everywhere. Jumps into this Marine helicopter. They pull him on board and he's shivering, he's cold. They've wrapped him in a thermal blanket. As they lift off the ground, I understand this to be exactly what Scott O'Grady said. He he just began to weep. He's utterly broken down, began to weep. He's sobbing, his chest is heaving. And the only thing he could say was, thank you, thank you, thank you. Praise God for rescuing me. That is redemption. The glory of God is shown when you and I allow God to rescue us. When we let him set us free to pull us out of enemy territory in all of the places that we've fallen captive, relationally, sexually, in our consumption of food, alcohol, work, materialism, in our attitudes, in our fears, and on and on. God is most glorified when you and I allow him to set us free. So I think it's fair to say that Ephesians, this wonderful letter, starts with a bit of a bang, like an opening scene of a film that catches our attention with a thrilling car chase. The first chapter of Paul's letter here explodes with these incredible truths. We are chosen. We are made blameless through the one who is blameless. We are hidden in him. We have a purpose for our lives. We are set apart for the glory of God. And Paul says, for this reason, because of this incredible reality, this incredible gospel, Let our lives, let our identity, let our relationships be shaped by this wonderful news. Over the coming weeks, we're going to return to these ideas and look at how that might impact our lives in greater depth. But I just want to finish with a challenge in the form of a story. In June 2008, Degli Martinez, a maintenance man from New York, discovered that he had won a 65 million dollar lotto jackpot, the largest prize awarded to a single winner in the 30-year history of the game. So he immediately took his winning ticket, went down to the mini market to collect what is known as a jackpot receipt. And the shop assistant printed that receipt and he told him, you need to go to the lottery office straight away and claim your winnings. And so on his way home, he's carefully guarding this receipt. He accidentally threw the actual ticket away. So he had the receipt, that was kind of proof, and also he could confirm that the winning ticket had been sold at that store, but because he'd lost the original ticket, he was unable to collect his prize money for a whole year, because the rules of the game said they had to wait 365 days to make sure no one else handed in the original ticket. 
So here's Degley, he's a low-wage worker, effectively has become a multi-millionaire. The 65 million was rightfully his, but for a year he lived in relative poverty, knowing that he should rightfully be living like a king. Paul was saying to the church in Ephesus, you are spiritual multi-millionaires. You have every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. But many of them were walking around in relative spiritual poverty because they hadn't fully realized, they hadn't fully claimed that prize. And some of you here today or online with us today, maybe you know, maybe in a similar place, you can identify this with this. You haven't taken hold of that for which Jesus has, you know, already taken hold of you, what he's done for you. Perhaps you don't identify yourself as truly a, a son or a daughter of the king. Perhaps you don't truly know that you are chosen. You don't fully grasp what it means to be adopted, adopted into God's family. You feel broken and you are, you know, you are, all of us are. You feel broken. You haven't fully realized that God doesn't see you that way. He sees you as holy and blameless because you are clothed with Jesus. You are in Christ. And it may be, as we talk about behavior, that you realize your behavior is not aligning with your true identity. It may be for some of you that you are yet to say yes to Jesus. And in the first chapter of Ephesians, we read that God has already done everything we need to step into every spiritual blessing. So for this reason, let us step into it. Let us live like the spiritual multimillionaires we already are.